millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast, I'm Ben Eshmaid, and on this edition, we journey into the cinematic storytelling of filmmaker Sebastian Lelio with a bold and beautiful Oscar-nominated A Fantastic Woman and its follow-up, Disobedience, a powerful drama about faith and love. Ronit and Esti are the two sides of uh, the same coin, so to say. So one escaped and uh, she ran away, and by doing that, she lost uh, connection with her origins but she gained her individual freedom. And the other one, Esty, Rachel McCann's character, stayed, repressed herself, and by doing that, she lost connection with who she really was. Let's begin with the story of a fantastic woman. And it's a film about a woman, but then it's more than that, and then it's a ghost story, and it's a funeral film. So it's a, it's a trans genre film mm. about a transgender character. It begins with Marina and her birthday where dramatically her lover Orlando is taken ill and quickly and unexpectedly dies. Marina is a trans woman and for most of Orlando's family they consider her gender identity a perversion. This film is about Marina's struggle for the right to be herself. Daniela Vega plays Marina and Francesco Reyes plays Orlando. I joined the director to talk about this emotionally charged film. The fantastic woman of this film is Marina, played by Daniela Vega. Why did she encapsulate this character? That was the result of a very organic process. Because um, at the very beginning, when I was, you know, wondering if I really wanted to make this film, I um, decided to to meet a few transgender women in Santiago and... Mm. And we met Daniela, and Daniela became a friend of the project. The writing process started, and she was kind of like a consultant, mm. not for the script, but as someone like that was able to share what being a transgender woman had meant for her in, in Santiago, in Chile. She made me understand that I wanted to make the film, and then she made me understand that I was not going to make it without a, a transgender actress. And then towards the end of the writing process, I realized that I wanted her to be Marina, <laughs> you know, that, that my beloved already friend uh, and, and cultural advisor was the star. Mm. So it was super organic and natural. Marina's life is shattered at the start of the film by the unexpected death of her lover, Orlando. It does seem to start, though, the film in quite a romantic paradise, something that can't last. Yeah, well, that's uh, one of the 
the games of the film, you know, um, it starts like a like an, a late forties melodrama mm. and a, and a very conventional love story. Of course, that's uh, deliberate and um, and that you know changes dramatically when when he disappears and mm. uh, and the camera goes towards Marina and then we understand who she is and and then and then the journey really really begins. But then the film itself starts to change as well. Yeah. So from this romantic film, it becomes a, kind of like a thriller, and then it becomes a character study, and it's a film about a woman, but then it's more than that, and then it's a ghost story, and it's a funeral film. So it's a, it's a trans-genre film mm. about a transgender character. The two themes that I picked up on were identity and loss. Taking the first one, um, identity, uh, Marina herself seems to have a strong sense of who she is, but it's everyone around her who doesn't, who questions her. Right, yeah. I think that, uh, well, Marina transitioned many years ago. She gave that battle. She won. And um, she's completely ready for the world. The only detail is that the world is not ready for her, but that's not her fault, yeah. you know? And uh, in a certain way, all the secondary characters that are so troubled by her presence are, you know, calling her names and mm. trying to define her. And by doing that, they don't reveal anything about Marina. No. They just expose themselves. So I think that's that's how the film works. We see them calling her names and and we have time to analyze the, so to say, problem from every possible angle, I mean, through the secondary characters. But here and there, Marina looks straight into the lens. Mm. She looks at us. Breaks like, the fourth wall. Breaks the fourth, fourth wall, like asking, what are you seeing? Yeah. You know, what do you project on me? What do you see? And sort of following that up, everything in this film is reflected off of Marina um, in a literal sense as well, because we see lots of reflections yeah. in the cinematography. I, I really enjoyed that. W where did that idea come from? That made its way into the script slowly and started to grow all the mirrors and reflections. I think it has to do with what we were talking right before. It's a game of uh, projections. You know, the secondary characters are projecting their own fears and fantasies and desires upon Marina. And then we are analyzing this from outside, but without noticing, we are doing the same thing. Mm. And we are, you know, trying to understand what we are seeing and how do we feel about her. Yeah. So in that sense, the idea of uh, how looks have the power to define what we see becomes stronger and stronger. And in that sense, um, reflections and mirrors literally resonate with the DNA of the film. And cracked mirrors as well, or cracked reflections, or broken up, kind of that sort of, that sense of someone struggling. Yeah, I think so. As well as the idea of, uh, of an identity that is uh, in flux, mm. no? Yeah. That is not fixed, that can be sculptured, or that can evolve. And there's another uh, incredible scene where uh, she's battling the wind and, uh, and nature. And uh, there's also, I was thinking about this, and this goes back to what you were saying earlier, that when you enter the cinema, you do have trust and we maybe forget about everything else we know or at least are willing to go on the journey. You mean while watching a film? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I truly believe that a film should be a, a dream, you know, and should be... The, is closer to hypnosis than to anything else. 
you know, than to being didactic, mm. you know. And, and, and in this case, I really wanted to make a strong, to offer a strong cinematic journey with a dreamlike quality and, 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 and an experience, first of all. Mm. Not a message, not a cause, not a political... I mean, those dimensions are there. Yeah. But f first and foremost is, is the invitation to, to get lost in that world mm. and, and, and to have an intense emotional cinematic journey. Moving to the theme of loss, a marina isn't allowed to grieve. Uh, yeah, I mean, somehow all the situation unfolds in a way in which the right to say goodbye to a beloved one becomes central, mm. crucial, urgent. Uh, even a matter of uh, life or death, you know, for her. And, and yeah, and, and, and they want her away from the funeral rituals and away from the family. And the question is, why are, th are they so troubled? Yeah. What, what is so dangerous about her? And then she decides to go to everything and to claim her right to say goodbye. So, yeah, it's part of, the, of, of what's essential in the film. One of the toughest people she has to face is Orlando's ex-wife. She describes her at one stage as, uh, describes her as a chimera, which I, I looked up as a she-goat. Yeah, well, I guess we use that word more in Spanish than you do it in English. Um, it's um, technically it's a mythological animal that is uh, a combination of uh, three different animals. Basically, it's like an aberration, but as well, something fantastic, something powerful and dangerous and, and monstrous, you know? So it's a very sophisticated way of uh, insulting someone. But yeah, in Spanish is chimera. And you, when you say you are a chimera, you're saying you are an illusion. You are, you know, you, are, you think you're something and you're not. Yeah. So she's, very, she's being quite mean at that stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting, that line between someone, something that's a monster and something that's, as you say, is, is, um, is fantastic. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, that in, in, in a certain way, the word fantastic in the title uh, has this double meaning because fantastic means that which has extraordinary properties, but at the same time, it means that which is the product of fantasy. And I think the, the film leaves enough space for the spectator to decide in which way Marina is fantastic. One of the other interesting characters is Orlando's brother. Mm. Interesting because he um, is sympathetic towards Marina, but he doesn't have the guts to kind of take on his family. And, and I found that was, the, that was the thing I was kind of rooting for him to do something which perhaps, which in the end he, he, he can't. I know, I like him because he's, he's trying and he has the intuition that the right thing to do would be to include her. And we can sense that he loved his brother and that that deserved, you know, some kind of respect to the woman that he loved. But um, he's trying, but there's something missing there. I don't mm. know if it's um, cultural, if it's education, if it's a lack of intelligence or, or emotional intelligence. But I have to say that I like him because he's at least trying while the other ones are more rigid. And I think, you know, being rigid is the end because that means you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he, at least still in certain zones, flexible. I'm interested to ask how you value success. It's obviously a complicated question to answer. Is it about you making the best film you can? Is it how people react to your film? That's funny because um, I think it was Oscar Wilde who said... Uh, 
only a fool doesn't recover from success. And I think that's so true. You know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a dangerous trap. But at the same time, when you make a film, you are willing, you're wishing that the film is going to be able to touch people, it's going to be seen, mm. it's going to be indicated as important, as relevant, as touching, as moving, as something that you have to go and see. And that's how I understand success. You know, that and maybe to earn the right to keep on filming. A Fantastic Woman is sumptuous and soul-searching with an incredible score from composer Matthew Herbert. We move now to Sebastian's follow-up film, his English-language debut, Disobedience. In this film, we follow Ranit, played by Rachel Weiss, who travels home on the death of her father. She returns to the orthodox Jewish community that had previously outcast her for her relationship with childhood friend Esty, played by Rachel McAdams. Once back together, Ranit and Esty explore the boundaries of faith and sexuality, in turn betraying Dovid, Esty's husband, who is played in the film by Alexandro Nivola. My father just died. I know. I know I was there. It's important that this week is conducted with honour. Honour? It's the most important thing. Of course it is. Director Sebastian Lelio joined me once again. This film begins with a death, uh, that of Rav Krushka. A sad moment, but it's also a moment of release, something which allows the unravelling of the story and the unexpected bringing together of the three main characters. Basically, a great start to a film. Yeah, well, it has that quality of uh, that death, the Ronit's father's uh, death. It's, uh, it's really like the inciting incident. It's, mm. it's what puts the entire narrative machinery into motion. And uh, the thing is that Rachel Weisz's character thinks that she's going to go back to the land from where, from where she was exiled, just to take care of, you know, the paperwork and the mundane stuff that implies the death of uh, a beloved one or your, your, your father. But then there is another story hiding within that story. And like concentric uh, storytelling style that, that has different layers and, and, and different um, levels, I think is something that was really, one of the things that was really appealing to me when, when I became involved in the project. I spoke to you at the time of A Fantastic Woman coming out and you described that film as like a dream. So this seems very much very far away from that, you know, harsh reality. Oh, well, maybe this is a different kind of dream, yes. you know, <laughs> because I think that the, the tone and, 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 and the energy of the, of the film has, a cer- has certain elements that could be interpreted as dreamlike here and there. But uh, of course, it's very different from, from the feeling that you can get while watching A Fantastic Woman, yes. Mm-hmm. Not a nightmare, though. I think that's too far. Yeah, I think it's, it's, never, it's never a nightmare, but um, the three characters in this very particular love triangle, uh, they have to face uh, important dilemmas. Mm. And, um, and I think uh, that can, can become quite intense at times in the film, especially because they, 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 they move towards this kind of like uh, impossible situation. The three mm. of them are trapped in this... Uh, impossible situation and they have to act and I think that's uh, where the tension of the film comes from 
Do you know what you really want? Yes, I do. I do know. I want my dad to know that I loved him. Do you think he knew that? Yes, yes, he did. He had to know. And this all comes from the book, which I think had a big impact when it when it first came came out. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Naomi Alderman wrote this book, I mean, beautifully wrote this book uh, 12 years ago. And when she wrote it, she was um, part of the community. She mm. was an Orthodox woman. And, and I think she wrote her way out of there with the book. But yeah, 12 years after, uh, we, we come on board and uh, we need to make a film. And uh, the book deals beautifully with uh, lots of memories and, and, and feelings and it mm. des describes them with great detail. And that is um, how the book is, you know, but we needed to find ways to translate that into action, into movement. Mm. And uh, so that was great, a great talent, a great fun. And uh, along with uh, Rebecca Lenkiewicz, the co-writer, yeah. yeah, we I think we found ways to 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 translate it into into film language. But you know, the the essence of of, of the story that that Naomi told, I think it's is is there in the film. Yeah. Mainly the the very interesting dynamics between the three uh, main characters and the fact that they are yeah willing to disobey. Mm. Um, what the society that they belong to um, suggests for yeah. them to do, yeah. are, and, and even more than that, or more, most importantly, uh, to disobey what they thought was um, the right thing, mm. you know, so to disobey their own belief systems. You talked about the three characters, but I would also say, um, as we mentioned at the beginning, that the ghost of the father is the additional character and he's, right. he's reflected in the community. Their judgment on the, the relationship of the three is, is very much there throughout. Yeah, I mean, the, the presence of the father is, is very important in the film, even if it's uh, by absence. Mm. You know, the film opens with him and uh, with his speech about free will and, you know, human beings being somehow some something in between angels and beasts yeah. uh, and uh, and and we have that dilemma of uh being free to choose you know uh so i think that really resonates during the entire film and his influence as a character is is always there i would say in a very strong way even though he's he's physically not there mm. So all you did all day was stay in here and read the Torah and the commentaries on the Torah and the notes on the commentaries and the debates on the notes. Mm. And I think he contributes to probably one of the most saddest or reflective moments of the film where the character of um, Ronit goes to visit his house and, um, yeah, she's there with um, Esti as well and, and they comment on the fact that he was always in this room studying yeah the religious texts and the comments on the religious texts. And that moment is very powerful. Uh -huh. Well, I'm, uh, thank you. <laughs> I, I, I like that sequence because um, somehow that house, the rabbi's house, the Ronit's father's house, is, is like the character himself, you know? So mm. it's like they enter into the corpse of the father, kind of like the remains of a, uh, like the interior of a whale that is, that is okay. there, you know? Like it has that, that, that element. And that's where the romance finally, you know, unfolds. So, so it has, um, yeah, it's, it's a meaningful moment. And mm. 
everything is charged with memories and meaning and, and uh, frustration. And, you know, so it's kind of like everything is uh, overloaded with mm. what the story really is about. Yeah, I suppose it's like the fizzing of banging of, 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 their, of their relationship, of the rekindling. You know, again, in, in within the house, they hear the cure on the radio. And that just, we don't know what it triggers, but we have a feeling the underlying power is coming from that, just that one moment. Yeah, yeah, you know, of course, of course. I mean, um, one of the things that is different in the film uh, than in the book is the fact that we don't use uh, flashbacks. So everything is about the amount of information that you give the spectator uh, regarding backstory. So the spectator is always trying to, to, to grasp anything that, that can reveal what they were, the type of uh, relationship that they had. And I think that moment when they listen to The Cure is, uh, is it's all about the past, you mm-hmm. know, and of course about a uh, sparkle that is reignited. And you've described uh, the two characters, um, this relationship that the film is, is focused on, um, Ronit and Esty, um, as two sides of the same person, which I found quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's... that's uh, uh, so to say, a device or a strategy that we used uh, for the writing process. We, we always understood Ronit and Esti as the two sides of uh, the same coin, so to say. So one escaped and uh, she ran away. And by doing that, she lost a uh, connection with her origins, but she gained her individual freedom. Mm-hmm. And the other one, Esti, Rachel McCann's character, stayed, repressed herself. And by doing that, she lost connection with who she really was. So... In these days where the throne is empty and, and Ronit comes back and everyone is, is in going through the funeral rituals and everything, they, um, they can help it and they fall mm. for each other again. And, and somehow by doing that, they help each other to move, reintegrate those elements that were somehow forgotten within themselves, mm. you know? And I really um, enjoyed the performance of Alessandro uh, Nivola as uh, David. He... Um, I want to describe him as sort of like this incredibly thoughtful person thinking before he spoke and as if he was the, the, the scriptures himself themselves, I suppose. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I love what Alessandro did. David was one of the, the hardest characters to write mm. because uh, it's a type of masculinity that is um, not oftenly represented. You know, I mean, in this type of story, he should have been just the jealous husband. Angry and Exactly, the antagonist and, you know, the guy that is creating uh, obstacles and problems. And, and it's more complex than that because David is a rabbi, he's a scholar, he's an intellectual, he's a man of faith. Uh, he's a very, very uh, masculine guy, man with a, with a strong energy, but at the same time he's very delicate and, and intelligent and... Uh, so it's a complex character. And I think um, what I love about what as Alessandro did is, is that he really captured that multi-dimension quality of the character. I mean, he steals the climax, you know. Mm. The, the char- David, yeah, David's character steals the climax and everything is about what he's going to do with his dilemma and uh, with which attitude he will face this uh, impossible situation. Another temptation was to make the community the antagonist. Yeah. Only that, you know, like kind of like to simplify things up to that level. And uh, working with Rebecca, the co-writer, Rebecca Lenkiewicz, it was uh, an important discovery to understand that uh, the real antagonism was not from the community. It was really coming from the characters themselves and their own belief systems as um, 
as the main uh, impeachment to, for them to move on to the next level. So, of course, they have to disobey the commandments of the, of the community, mm. but more importantly, they have to disobey what they thought the world was, the, yeah. their own understanding. And, and that's really what a crisis is, mm. you know, and, and I love to push characters, my characters towards a moment of crisis because then you can see what they are made of, you mm. know. So I think somehow the three of them are pushed towards this moment of, uh, yeah, kind of like an evolutionary crossroad that they have to go through. This is where you first kissed me. It's insane that you're here. And how did you find North London? <laughs> how was your time in London? Uh, everything was very grey. <laughs> it, it was winter. But, you know, um, when I arrived to London to and had have to put a team together, I didn't know anyone. And I was like... I didn't know a person and, uh, and I felt really welcome. And uh, despite the winter and how cold it was, uh, I felt blessed because um, I, I had the chance to work with great people and, and we had a very inspiring time making this film. And in regards to rehearsals and, and getting the, the performances out of the lead actors, was this similar to what you've done before or did you, was it more like a, a play or a theatre piece? Did you, did you approach it differently? No, it was similar. I don't, I don't really like to rehearse because I think film is, well, a very different medium than theatre. And when you rehearse too much, then things can get fixed and uh, the camera doesn't like that. <laughs> the camera likes uh, something that is being born in front of her, you know. And So no, it was mainly about spending time together and building trust and, 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 and understanding that, um, you know, that we could all trust each other and, and that in, in the set there would be room to be brave and to be foolish and to, and to dare and that I would take care of them at the end, you know. So yeah. I think that's, that, that's what's more important, uh, to create an energy in the set where everything, everyone has enough space to, to, to explore and to, yeah, to go as far as possible. I tried to imagine your room. I kept track of time difference. So I knew when you were awake and when you were asleep. I was born into this community. I had no choice. Thanks to Sebastian for speaking to us. Disobedience is a powerful and deeply reverberating drama that goes beyond easy description, but it's much recommended from me. I'm Ben Eshmead. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. Here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.